Um, hello, everybody. I'm Annika Johnson, Associate Curator of Native American Art at the Joslin Art Museum. And I'm here again um, with Marissa Cummings, the soon-to-be CEO of the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center in St. Paul. Um, and Amplify Arts has generously allowed us to continue a conversation that we began a couple months ago, um, a blog post that is currently online. Um, and so here we are for round two. Um, Marissa, welcome again, and I'll let you introduce yourself as well. Okay, thank you, Annika. Ebeblite, uibdatamike, ijaji uibdate, miyakanda, tisindawa ubli, ishtasindunia shingawa ubli. Marissa Cummings. So um, in my language, which um, actually is one of the original languages of both the territory I'm on in Sioux City today and the territory you're on in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, so one of the indigenous languages that's indigenous to this area. Um, what I just said is, um, I'll tell you who I am. Um, my name is Mia Conda. My um, English name is Marissa Cummings. And I am Omaha and I belong to the Buffalo Tail Clan of the Sky People. I could go on and on about like who my ancestors are and who I come from, but um, we'll just keep it short this time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. A lot has happened um, since we spoke a couple of months ago. I feel like we're in this just um, state of reflection as a community, as a nation. Um, and we have a lot to discuss today. So I, I figured building on our last conversation that we can begin with a discussion about sovereignty. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us about what sovereignty means in a larger uh, federal Indian law context, but also at a, at a personal level. Right. So, um, you know, this word sovereignty gets thrown around a lot and it means a lot of different things in different contexts. Um, so um, sovereignty, of course, is not a word that is even indigenous. Right. It's a um, settler um, imposed word in the English language and it is tied to um, justice and court systems um, that are essentially the courts of the conqueror. So when we talk about sovereignty, like me, myself, I'm inherently sovereign. I'm an inherently sovereign being on my traditional homelands. Um, and then in, in a larger context, sovereignty would be, um, or native communities are seen as quasi-sovereign domestic dependent nations, um, according to the Supreme Court. And so essentially we're as in, in terms of the federal government, we're as sovereign as they allow us to be day to day. So the, um, an act of Congress can actually eliminate reservations in our tribal communities just through an act of Congress. Um, an act of Congress is the only way that treaty land can be diminished. And so um, sovereignty, you know, we, we say like we're sovereign nations. So in our minds, we are still um, sovereign nations with our own governance, our own ways, our own um, identity, culture, language. Um, and when we signed the treaties with the federal government, those treaties were signed on a nation to nation basis. Statehood was just happening at that time. And statehood, statehood would not have happened without treaties being signed. So Nebraska, for instance, in the treaty that we signed in 1853, 54, um, is that treaty allowed for the state of Nebraska to be established because we had to cede our homelands um, to make room for statehood. So it's really important to understand um, historically how that worked, what treaties mean. Treaties are the supreme law of the land. Um, treaties, you know, if you break a treaty with any um, sovereign entity say like um, Greece that can be an act of war and yet we know that um, almost every treaty that the United States government has signed with uh, with native people has been uh, broken so um, yeah so sovereignty can mean you know different things in different places there's also the idea of quasi sovereignty which really means you're not sovereign <laughs> so um, yeah it's a really complicated word um, and that's why I always come back to the fact that I'm inherently sovereign. You know, I'm a sovereign being um, on the traditional homelands of my people. So, mm -hmm. Thanks. There is a lot to unpack there. Um, it's a very complicated term. And I feel like 
um, sovereignty in general and federal Indian law especially does not make its way into mainstream politics. Um, you know, we have had a few major cases recently that we can dive into um, that relate to sovereignty. And, you know, so you can discuss these as you'd like, but I, I'm also curious to hear more about inherent sovereignty and how this, how you assert that at a personal level and within your advocacy mm -hmm. work um, and within your, your artwork too. Um, there's multiple ways in, in the gardening projects that you work on. Right. So um, just to get back to um, your first question about the cases that have happened. So we have McGritt versus Oklahoma, which um, we've been waiting on a very long time to find out what the, um, what the decision was going to be by the Supreme Court. And it was a, um, if I remember right, it was a, a five to four ruling. And um, it was found that the Muscogee or Creek people, um, when they were put on the Trail of Tears, they were promised a piece of land when they reached what was then called Indian Territory, which is currently called Oklahoma. And when they got there, they were not awarded that land base. And so there was, um, it, it's, a, it's kind of complicated how this stuff works and makes it to the Supreme Court, but essentially there was a Muscogee man who was tried for a, um, a sexual assault um, and his attorneys appealed that case on the basis that the state had no jurisdiction over the crime due to this um, land dispute. And it made it all the way to the Supreme Court and, and then we have the finding that yes, that is Muscogee um, Creek land now. Um, so I'm, I'm really at a state where I'm trying to unpack it all and what it means within this colonial context because essentially what the decision said was that um, the crimes that are committed within that territory now are federal jurisdiction if they fall under the Major Crimes Act. So the Major Crimes Act um, was originally seven crimes that became now, I think it's, it's a lot more than that, um, crimes that are committed in Indian country. So Indian country is within the boundaries of any reservation. So, and that's the, actually a legal term. So Indian country crimes that are committed that fall under the Major Crimes Act become federal jurisdiction. So this is really important when we talk about MMIW cases. Um, but that only applies to Indians because Indians only have jurisdiction over Indians on Indian land. We have no jurisdiction over non-Indians on Indian land. So a non-Indian offender would then, that would still fall under state jurisdiction. So these, the, the complexity of federal Indian law is incredible. And if I wouldn't have taken, you know, a year of uh, two semesters of classes specifically um, geared towards federal Indian law, I, I wouldn't have a clue of what I'm talking about right now. Um, it's very, very specific. And even lawyers that go through law school barely touch on federal Indian law. So um, it's a very specific type of, um, I guess, academic field. But the... What happened yesterday is that the tribe ceded some of their jurisdiction um, over to the state. So there, it's really confusing right now. A lot of people are really trying to figure out what's going on. The way that, the, the way that it's positive is that um, it can now say in boundary disputes that only an act of Congress can diminish Indian territory. Therefore, state encroachment, states are always trying to take land from tribes. It's been happening since day one. And so it now says that states cannot do that. Those, those original boundaries are in place. And so that was kind of the win. Um, but we're just waiting to see what else comes out of this. You know, um, it, people were like, oh, yeah, you know, I saw all these Facebook posts like, you know, land back. And I'm like, no, the land isn't back. Because even in, in terms of crimes that fall under the Major Crimes Act, we still have no jurisdiction over our own people. So we can't implement traditional law. It still falls under federal law or state law, which, which the federal sentencing are much more severe than state. So if all Indians fall under federal jurisdiction, their, their, um, the consequences or their sentencing is going to be much harsher um, but, or longer, but we also don't get fair trials within the state. Um, mm -hmm. because there's usually these border towns that are incredibly racist. And so there's so much complexity to this. Um, 
And in my mind, you know, when we come back to inherent sovereignty, um, people may say like, oh, you, you know, like I live in Sioux City. I live outside of the boundary of my reservation, but I live on my historical territory. So I feel it's really important for us to reclaim this idea of historic territory, um, the places where our ancestors are buried, the connection to land, um, human and non-human relatives in these spaces, and really return to that, you know, decolonizing the way that we think about land and space and um, also how we interact with others, right? And so to me, that's, um, you know, I'm on my homelands and, and that's all there is to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, my ancestors walked the same land that I'm on and have for um, a very, very long time. So, um, yeah, that's how I think I would I would kind of break that one down. Um, as far as the no dapple decision um, that just came out, um, you know, I, I'm anxious to see how, again, it's appealed. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I'm a little, I'm excited that, you know, that it happened, but I also am a little anxious about what this appeal is going to look like. Um, again, it's like we're given crumbs when it comes to um, the Supreme Court gives us crumbs and we're supposed to get excited about that. And I'm not getting excited about that. You know, I think that we're the indigenous people of this land. We are um, inherently sovereign as nations, clans, and individuals. And um, you know, we have the right to harvest wherever we go. Um, we have the right to um, connect with our um, human and non-human relatives how we see fit in kinship systems. So um, that makes us pol- a political entity, not just a race of people, which is a whole other issue, but race being a socially constructed idea that was implemented for the purpose of white supremacy here in America. And so um, looking at our kinships, you know, our kinship ways, our kinship systems, but also how we adopted people that may have been from a different group um, and they were just part of us, you know, how we identified with different groups of people. So even looking at how we've internalized this idea of race as a people um, mm-hmm. is really complex. So lots of decolonizing work to do. Yes. Can I return to this idea of land back, which is you know, a major part of uh, advocacy around indigenous land right now. Um, Can you talk about this a little bit more? I mean, this is a huge trend. I see it all over Instagram, especially in relation to a lot of the court cases right now. Can you talk about that a little bit further? Yeah. So again, like our, we say things sometimes and I don't know if we fully understand what, what they mean or Um, land back means different things to different people. So when the case happened in Oklahoma, everyone was like land back, but essentially that land is not back. You know, the tribe does not have jurisdiction over Tulsa. Um, the tribe cannot implement traditional law. Um, the tribe has no jurisdiction over non-natives residing on their land or private property, which is almost all of, you know, all of that territory. So it's, um, it's more complex when I think of land back, um, I think of acknowledging a connection to the land that falls in, in within my traditional territories. And I think of um, going into another groups, you know, these boundaries, we didn't have boundaries. We had shared territories. And so for even when people talk about um, these, these territorial acknowledgements, um, it's complicated because it's almost like we're adopting this colonial system of this was my land. And the reality is that many groups um, lived um, on the same land base simultaneously. And there was trade that was happening and there were ceremonies and interaction. And it was a whole different type of um, idea of land. Not to say that resources, when resources were scarce, people did fight. You know, there was war there. You know, it's not a utopia. Um, But this idea even of how we Um, were stewards or caretakers of the land. You know, what was viewed by others as just a a forest going crazy was actually a very well-kept food system for us. And so, um, yeah, I I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot going on there. I could go on and on, but. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like they're, you know, thinking about land back, that this has a lot to do with dismantling this colonial mindset. I mean, decolonization, we've talked about decolonization in the past interview in this 
this comes up a lot in conversations. I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on food sovereignty um, and how this relates to um, you know, the land back movement, but also thinking about um, dismantling, I guess, the colonial mindset. Right. So, I mean, we have to, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about, you know, this, this system that it were racist policies that have been in place since contact. And these racist policies um, really forced us to adopt um, or assimilate in many ways or adopt this mindset that we were somehow lesser than um, white Americans. And um, many of our people did the best they could to survive. And that involved being acculturated or assimilated into mainstream society. So what we're seeing now is this movement in Indian country um, among indigenous people to reclaim those systems, the ones that have never been lost, that people went into hiding to maintain, and to reclaim those systems that may be lost soon. So to talk to elders, to gain that knowledge and understanding of traditional food practices and knowing that we need these traditional seeds, like these little living beings that have been, you know, been passed down for thousands of years, we will need them as food systems moving into the future, especially with the effects of climate change. So we've survived climate change before. Like our people know um, we've been through this before. This is just another one of these times of change. And so we're taught to think about how are you going to survive? You know, you need food systems, you need clean water, um, you need one another, you need these traditional ways of knowing in order to be able to live off the, of the land if you're required to do that. And so that's something I see happening among younger people is this reclamation of these traditional systems that are all interconnected, um, spirituality, ceremony, um, food systems, land, women. I mean, um, men and their roles with fire, like it's all interconnected. And so um, we're just, it's a, a way of knowing that I think is being reclaimed by, um, by a lot of people. So when we talk about land back, we're talking about one, I think, you know, there's the Treaty of Fort Laramie going on right now. Um, the land back movement that happened at Mount Rushmore with Nick Tilson and NDN Collective. Um, and what they were saying is that, you know, this is stolen land, flat out. I mean, it, it, a court case said that this was stolen land and it's unceded territory, meaning they never signed a treaty relinquishing that land. The last treaty they signed said that land was theirs. And yet it's been taken and um, sacred mountains have been defaced um, with racist presidents. Um, so there's a lot going on there in, in that movement. And a lot of it was just about bringing awareness, right? Like if they wouldn't have had that uprising there, there wouldn't have been the awareness that, hey, you know, this is stolen land and we want it back because it's sacred to us and it means it's meaningful to us. So there's that part of land back where they're, they're um, physically wanting that land back in their um, boundary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, as, as the treaty stated. Yeah. And I think in terms of awareness, especially the No Dapple movement really brought these issues to a national mm -hmm. and international awareness. And I'm wondering, um, you know, if we could talk about that a little bit further, but also about solidarity, because I think due to this unprecedented level of national attention, that you have a lot of non-Native people who are joining in this movement and, and trying to support. Um, yeah, so I'm wondering if you could talk about solidarity a little bit from non-Native communities in this process of, of um, giving land back and recognizing traditional knowledge. Yeah, so where did you go before solidarity, though? You went somewhere else. You were talking about uh, No Dapple. Okay, so um, my mind went about 20 different places. So, yeah, I mean, the movement at No Dapple really um, projected mm -hmm. this idea of reclamation of traditional practices because they were happening at camps. Um, and I think for a lot of us that were doing these things just to ourselves, but really didn't feel like we had a support system, um, it really allowed us to connect with other Indigenous people that are doing the same work. 
and work collectively to push this movement forward in terms of, you know, treaties um, being upheld in order for us to protect the environment so that our children's 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 children will be healthy and safe and in a great community moving forward. So um, in this instance, it was about water and maintaining clean water systems in the midst of an oil pipeline that's extractive. So um, you have these two polarities, right? And um, when we look at solidarity, I looked at you know some of the solidarity that was happening, happening at camp um, was a little toxic um, and unguided. And so, and then we look at, you know, whose job really is it to teach people how to stand in solidarity because we're already exhausted trying to do all of this work outside of our, our jobs and, and lives and families. Um, so for me, I, I'm not a fan of the word ally because I think it's thrown around and everyone's an ally now. And there's more to just being an ally saying like, oh, you know, I don't believe racism is good. That's one thing. Um, it's something different to be an anti-racist. Um, it's something different to actively promote anti-racist dialogue, um, terminology, and to call out people when they are. And to me, that's what it means for someone to stand in solidarity. Um, it means that you're going to stand up and fight with them. Like you're going to be on the front lines with them. And that means that you will also be a target. It means that you will understand what it feels like for, to lose friends and family and um, jobs because of your, um, your stance and being in solidarity. So it's dangerous, you know, it's dangerous, but this is all the, what we live every day in um, maintaining our identity outside of assimilation. You know, those that assimilate into society, it's much easier. Um, I know because I did it for quite some time. It's very easy to assimilate um, and to be a token and to just keep your mouth quiet when things get rough and there's racist things that are said. Um, it's a lot more difficult to make yourself a target both in your community and outside your community. So to me, that's what standing in solidarity means is that you're down for the cause in all ways, shapes and forms. It's doing the work too. Exactly. Right. Right. And I think we're having this national conversation about anti-racism and what this looks like in the advocacy work that's happening. And I am wondering if you could speak to the intersections between what's going on in Indian country and the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. So we, I mean, it's so, it's so amazing um, to see these young Black women primarily that are leading this movement um, and so clearly articulating, you know, what racism is doing and what being an abolitionist is, right? Like knowing how slavery has changed and evolved, but not ended. Um, and so in, the, in this country, and so I look at, there's, there's definite intersectionality between black liberation and indigenous sovereignty. Mm -hmm. um, when I talk about black liberation, meaning that black people have not been liberated from oppression in this country or violence. And we have not been liberated from oppression or violence, even on our own land bases. And so, um, or outside our land bases. And so um, there's definitely um, a lot of work I think we need to do in learning um, as we move forward to how we're going to exist together and what that's going to look like. And so to me, if one group is being oppressed and this is their time right now, um, this is their movement and their time and we have to stand with them. And I don't think I'm alone in this. Um, the American Indian Movement was in Minneapolis on the ground um, right there during the protests. Um, there was definite, um, definite intersection and support from the Native community in Minneapolis. Um, and then, you know, they, they tore the Columbus statue down. Um, you know, Columbus isn't just, um, you know, someone who, I mean, one, he never even touched the Americas, but he represents colonization in so many forms of the beginning of colonization, but he also represented the beginning of slavery. And so in this country, and so um, it's, yeah, there's a lot of commonalities, right, in, in the dehumanization and the way that um, racism works in order to maintain this um, 
this social, economic, and political system in the country. Yeah, I've seen a lot of AIM flags at the protests in Omaha, um, and it's wonderful to see that. And um, also the video of the Columbus statue going down in front of the Capitol in St. Paul is just glorious in my mind, you know, and, and yeah. it was there singing and you could hear the drums. And I just feel like that's such a powerful moment that builds on decades of activism. Um, right kind of all coming to a head at, the, at this moment. Um, maybe this is a good time to talk about Minnesota because you're preparing for a move to take on a new uh, position. And um, yeah, I'm wondering if you could talk about what, what you'll be doing in your position and uh, your feelings about moving to Minnesota. <laughs> you're gonna be in Dakota land and Anishinaabe land um, and what, the, what that transition will look like for you. Yeah, so right now it's um, it's just getting everything in order, right? It, it happened pretty quick. So um, I will be the uh, president and CEO of the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center, and I couldn't think of a better fit for the work that I love to do, um, that I'm passionate about, and that I believe so strongly in for the healing and, um, and care of our women and children. So it's really exciting. Um, it is a little sad to leave my homeland and not being um, so close to um, to our community where you you know we hear the language and um, there's doings and dances and um, just that sense of identity that exists there but we're only four and a half hours away um, and there are other Maha people that live in Minneapolis um, and yeah so in moving to Minneapolis between the Dakota and um, Anishinaabeg people um, Umaha people have always been between those two groups. So it's really, it's really, um, you know, interesting because we're always, we always had um, the Dakota on one side and the Anishinaabe on the other. So um, I, yeah, I'm really um, excited to be welcomed into their homelands and, um, and form, you know, really great relationships with people and to do, do some really good work. Um, as far as, you know, the moving, it's just moving is just no fun, but we all know that. So <laughs> <laughs> it always takes longer than you think. <laughs> yes. Awful. Um, so you'll be um, working with women. What, what does this sort of work look like for you? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, um, when I look at it, it's not, I'm not at a director level, right? So as the um, president and CEO, it's like overseeing director's work. But as far as initiatives and developing that strategic plan, both with the board, um, as well as the community and our employees, um, through the strategic planning process, we will find out what our, um, our vision is, what our values are, and how we can incorporate those into all of the work that we do. Um, I would love to see um, programming coming out um, that is cultural-based. I would love to see work with, um, with food sovereignty and our seeds and gardening. Um, so there's a lot of things that I would like to see, but until I get there and can really look at all the programs and what they're doing, I, um, I, I can't really say what will happen right away, but more of just um, developing a strong infrastructure within the organization, developing capacity, um, and ensuring that we can do really good work that impacts the lives of our women and children in a really good way. Mm-hmm. That's so exciting. Congratulations on taking this Thank position. You. Like it's such a perfect fit. Um, we had talked in a phone conversation a couple of days ago mm -hmm. about um, activism in the Twin Cities. And I, I wanted to add to that just the art scene. The native art scene in the Twin Cities is really incredible. And yeah artist yourself. I know it's a lot of work to move your studio and it'll probably take a bit of time to get all of your sewing equipment set up, but I'm wondering how you see um, sewing and making as part of the work that you'll be doing and potentially for the programming. I know you haven't started the position yet, but in general, how this relates to um, healing for, for Native women. Absolutely. I mean, returning to our traditional crafts is absolutely a way to heal and to connect. Um, 
And whether that be, you know, making jingle dresses or birch bark baskets or um, elm bark baskets, whatever that looks like, um, making sure that we're sharing that knowledge um, and bringing in people that are, um, that have maintained that craft throughout their lifetime that are experts, bringing them in to do those teachings um, about the importance of that, um, that craft, whatever it is, is really, really important. Um, because sometimes we do things and we don't have the teachings behind them. And so we lose something, we lose an element of power with um, whatever that traditional teaching is. So um, yeah, I, I'm really excited for that. As far as moving, I keep looking at all my stuff, my fabric specifically in my trade cloth. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, how am I going to do this? And where am I going to move it? And am I going to have time to work on it as much as I like? So um, yeah, it's, I'm really excited to share whatever knowledge I have with people if they choose um, and continue that because that's my connection also to my homeland and my community. And so I, when I am sewing and making and creating, I feel very much connected to my grandmother's um, and that's really important. So, yeah. Well, um, you know, so much has happened in the past couple of months and with a move, you're moving an entire family. And, you know, I, I've heard a lot of conversations lately about family, especially with COVID. And now we have families who are in closer proximity, <laughs> spending a lot more time together. I'm you know, wondering, we talked about family a couple days ago and how you think within the national discourse on anti-racism, on the virus, on the presidential elections, what role does family and the home play in all of this? Yeah, I, I mean, the family and the home is where everything starts. Um, when we do this work on decolonizing and healing, that starts with our our families and our kinship systems and then our clans and then our, our nation um, and then the larger broader community. So it's almost like it radiates out from the family. So the healing that has to happen specifically with children, um, the work that's being done specifically with children in this time of COVID, I think that we're realizing how much um, work it is to raise children because our children go to school or they go through these systems, right? These government systems, I'm really realizing like daycare and school are all systems that are teaching our children and we're not teaching our children. So for me, um, I had our little ones, we have um, four little ones that we take care of through um, foster care and um, we did a garden. So as we were preparing the land to plant the seeds, I talk to them about, you know, community. And if the community comes together, it'll go faster. Um, we'll be able to plant faster. And then that's more food for us. But if we don't work, we don't eat. So teaching them that idea of, um, of work ethic and coming together as a community to do that work. Um, but that was, that was something that I realized they might not have learned if they were at school that day. And then um, also like with just with song and dance and the things that they're learning at home, um, you know, the girls want to put their jingle dresses on and practice. And um, that's just a part of affirming their identity, which I think is critical in um, creating healthy little humans and um, them going out into the world to do, to do their work. So I'm kind of processing all of this too right now with COVID and, how our families um, are connecting more, uh, maybe getting on each other's nerves a little bit more, but in, in a traditional format, this would be, you know, kind of how it was. Um, but working within this is very challenging, right? Um, working with little ones all around is definitely, I know, a challenge for everyone. Um, but I look at the school year moving forward, you know, will they be in school? Will they be learning from home? You know, there's a lot of unknowns right now as to what that'll look like. So um, trying to think of how I can supplement their education with traditional uh, teachings, like, um, you know, maybe tanning a deer hide or something like that that gets them outside and active and moving. So yeah, there's definitely a lot going on there. Um, but I feel like it's, it's definitely a good thing um, to have this time of reflection. And I look at my oldest is 27. She lives in Chicago and we talk almost daily. And she tells me about the reflection she's going through living alone. So she has to meet with her friends and they 
bring food and eat in a park and just all these ways of living with COVID right now and what that looks like. Um, but I see her level of reflection and understanding just is she's incredible. This next generation is just incredible. I'm so excited to see the work that they'll do to project a lot of these thoughts and methodologies that have been going on for a long time. Um, but it was almost stagnant. Like if we look at what happened with the Washington team, um, renaming because of their funders pulling money, not because they chose to, to be moral and ethical. Um, but now other teams kind of following suit, other teams saying they refuse to follow suit like the Blackhawks. Um, but the Washington team also said that they refused to. <laughs> and um, then it wasn't their choice anymore. Yeah. So that's been going on for generations, right? And then to see um, this come to fruition, like all within a week, it was like McGritt versus Oklahoma, um, no dapple, and then um, <laughs> the name of the, of the Washington team changing. And it was like, holy smokes, like, are all the stars aligned right now? <laughs> like, what's happening? <laughs> um, but I think all of that is happening, too, because of Black Lives Matters and because of the social consciousness that they are very intentional and deliberate about bringing to the people. And then I also think that um, because non-people um, of color or white people have been exposed to more groups over the past generation or two, um, because segregation has um, somewhat quasi-ended, I think that people are more open to these types of thinking, these ways of thinking. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's tons of work to do in decolonizing. There's tons of work to do in educating, um, you know, education is a system. It's a racist system in this country. And how can we start educating people about federal Indian policy as part of their education, educating them about the indigenous people that are on the land that they are occupying, um, educating people that treaties are as meaningful to white people as they are to us because a treaty is what allowed you to be on the land. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that treaty is, um, is collective. It's not just one-sided. And so I think that we're entering a time where we can really look at that um, clearly. And I think part of that is because of um, phones and technology and being able to capture instances of overt racism that we have been experiencing. It's not an influx like people tend to think this is what's been happening for quite some time, but it wasn't proven. You know, people didn't want to take people of color's word for it. So now, um, you know, the entire country has it in their face that this is happening. This is proof that it's happening. And you have some that are in complete denial and choose to be in denial and choose to maintain um, the sickness is what I call it of white supremacy. Um, and then there's those that are like, hey, you know, let's change this, but I don't know how, or I'm scared, or I'm fearful. And then you have those that are just jumping in, you know, head first and ready to, to be um, in solidarity with us. So, um, yeah, there's a lot going on. And we also have children that are still in cages at the border. So that's a whole nother, um, a whole nother aspect of what we have to look at in terms of who's free in this country, who has worth. Who doesn't? Who's allowed in? If you look at immigration policy and how that's gone even from, um, oh gosh, from the 1920s, immigration policy specifically only allowed certain Europeans to come in and didn't allow countries with um, brown and black folks in. So this is um, systematic. And I, I keep saying that because I really feel like so many people think that racism is interpersonal. And in order, I guess the best way to, to explain that is that, you know, there were slave masters that had black children because it was a system that was upheld through law and policy. And in order for us to dismantle these systems, we have to be anti-racist, not just um, neutral. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's, um, I'm processing a lot right now. Um, you know, I don't have all the answers. I'm not an expert. I'm just um, really trying to work through all of this and see the best way that we can have a country moving forward um, that is positive. And actually something else I know that you want to talk about, you know, dismantling capitalism and um, 
capitalism isn't all, I mean, there's forms of capitalism that are not oppressive. Um, but recently on Fox News, they released a article where they showed um, the murder of black men. So Martin Luther King, George Floyd, and others, and then showed how the stock market went up after those murders. And I didn't believe it when I saw it. I actually had to research it, and it did happen. And that was so powerful to me because it showed the correlation between human life and its worth and how black lives are still seen as a, a tie to human cap or to um, financial capital. So that was, that was just really interesting to me, like, because um, the black experience is different than the indigenous experience. When you look at the one drop rule, you're black if you have one drop of black blood versus indigenous people that they were trying to breed out. So if you're under 25%, you're not, you know, you're no longer native. So it, it was very different ways that they did that to divide and conquer. Um, so, and yet there's, um, there was a lot of intersection even between the communities. So yeah, there's just a lot, a lot, a lot going on that I'm, I'm just trying to process and um, watch my kids process this and being in this time of change and I call it um, transformative. Um, I think it's a transformative time and we clearly have leadership that is not um, kind or moral right now and but that leadership has allowed us to look at um, our country in a different way as well and and humanity I think in in a way that we haven't looked at it before so I'm just super excited to see how these young ones, you know, project us forward. And in our community, it's all about life and life moving forward into the future um, with generations to come and living our, in a good way, in a kind way, in a loving way, and um, honoring those, those teachings and those ways of being that have been passed on to us through our ancestors. So yeah, <laughs> fighting time. <laughs> Very exciting times. And I like, you know, talking about it as transformative because I feel with COVID, you know, I've had a lot of time to reflect on systems in general, even thinking about what the workplace looks like. And now that yes. I can from home and kind of follow my own work patterns, <laughs> which may be vary a little bit outside of the nine to five schedule. Yeah. And just, you know, I'm hungry, you know, multiple times a day. I drink more water when I'm home, you know, I, and, I, and I think about the, the systems of, of labor, but also, like you said, we're doing the same thing with school and understanding how um, school is this very structured and inherently racist system, too. And I, you know, I think the next generation is a really powerful generation. And to have at such a young age... Um, an opportunity to get that sort of bird's eye view of how systems work. I mean, and to comprehend the scale of it is, is really powerful. And it seems like they're kind of the first generation to really have that opportunity. And yeah. I am likewise excited to see. Yeah. And it's about humanity, right? Like when you talk about the workplace, like I'm the same way I'm working from home and I'm like, Oh, this is like, it's different, right? And it's, um, it allows us to be more human rather than just in this constant mode when you're at work of like, I need to do this, 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 and this. And maybe we don't get up to use the bathroom as much as we should, or we don't drink as, enough water as we should, or we don't eat lunch because we're working through it. Um, we're not paying attention to our human um, needs and stress levels go up. And um, not to say that COVID doesn't have other ways that stress levels have gone up, but um, it's just, I think that we're looking at ways that we can have better lives and more fulfilling, holistic lives. And that is what I think all of us want for our children, even and our children's children moving forward, that they are able to live their best life. They're able to use their skill set and their gifts in the best way possible to help support humanity. And, um, and I think what's cool too is a lot of people are planting gardens so when the thought of a food shortage happened, you know, like if we look two generations back and I, I always use this analogy, like on my mom's side, on my, my German family had a 
meatpacking or meat locker in Petersburg, Nebraska. And it was the Reich's family meat locker. And if you needed meat, you went to the meat locker and you got fresh meat. Um, now we go to Walmart and we get not fresh meat and it's not local and we don't know, you know, who's bringing it in. So in two generations, we lost this local food systems as well as the gardens that everyone kept. It was just normal to keep a garden. Mm -hmm. And so we, um, we're, we've moved away from that. And so now I see us again, looking at, Hey, like there wasn't a shortage of meat. There was a shortage of workers at meat packing plants. So do we want to look at localized butcher shops again and what that could do um, to feed the health and wellness of our community and our food systems? So um, I really hope that we're just looking at all of this and just thinking about how we can be healthier, happier um, humans and um, dismantle these systems that don't allow other people to be healthy or as happy, right? And um, even when we look at like, you know, when we talk about things, especially with indigenous people, right? That they're, oh, you're pre, um, pre-conditioned to get diabetes and you're pre-conditioned to get blah, blah, blah and heart disease and you're gonna die before you're 40 and all, the, all of these, you know, negative things. And I want to say those are a result of racism mm -hmm. because our people were originally healthy until those systems were taken, literally taken and forced from us through racist policies. And so, um, and then we were given these unhealthy alternatives that then became normalized and are normalized to this day so that we aren't as healthy as human beings or there's traumas that are happening to our children and we don't have resources for um, mental and behavioral health. And so maybe these children aren't able to, um, you know, reflect or work on or heal from traumas that happen to them. So those traumas compile and um, affect their lives into addiction as adults. So we don't look at how racism is a, affects people's lives and takes people's lives and takes the, um, I guess, quality of their lives from them. And I even look at it in terms of the stress of the work that I do. You know, when you're constantly trying to dismantle systems of racism and you're asked to be on panels where you're basically like, it's basically like ask an Indian and people are um, violent with their words and hurtful and harmful, like that affects my anxiety or my, um, my heart, right? Because you get anxious and all of that, that affects our health. And so um, I really hope people start writing more about how people of color are um, affected by their, by racism, their health is affected by racism. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think we're seeing this with COVID. I mean, just how reservation communities are, are disproportionately impacted by COVID right now. It's really throwing into relief the lack of health resources, just the lack of respect for um, tribe sovereignty and ability to make decisions for the community's health. I mean, this is becoming so much more present. I mean, it's always, these issues have always existed, but mm -hmm. I feel like COVID, it's finally coming to light, um, especially in, in mass media. You know, there was a huge article about the Diné Nation in the New York yeah. Times, and, and I was happy to see that because I think it's important that people realize that this is how, you know, this decades, decades and centuries of genocidal policy, this is how it plays out. And right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's playing out now. Like this isn't the first epidemic that our people have been through. Like people refer back to smallpox. Yes, smallpox did happen. And it took um, like 90% of, of our, our tribe um, in the 1880s. But look at typhoid. Typhoid mm -hmm. is what took my great grandmother at 40. Look at um, tuberculosis. My grandmother had TB and was in a sanitarium in Rapid City and somehow survived and has half, had half of a lung but suffered from COPD for the rest of her life. So when those conditions were mainstream, everybody was, you know, even in those times, people were looking at um, staying home and, and taking care of the community. But once those diseases became specifically rampant on Indian reservations or in black communities um, or low income communities, then we saw it just kind of like, oh, okay, it's okay. But it wasn't okay, people are still dying. Um, in our community, we're looking at like two COVID deaths a week right now. 
Um, and so Thurston County, I think, is fourth in the nation right now for, um, for COVID. And so there's, but nobody, there, it's not even being reported on in Sioux City, which no. is the closest urban center, or Omaha, right? Right. I don't see any reporting on it in Omaha. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just like, oh, they're dying, but eh, I mean, it's not us. So yeah, I mean, we have, there's a lot going on. Um, and I also think it's up to the tribal um, leadership to make sure that people do know what's going on. It's up to them to release press releases. And, but then there's this always this idea of racism and the backlash of like, Oh, like we're bad or somehow deserving of these, um, these diseases that affect our communities. So, um, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I feel like in Omaha, you know, there's a, a lot of, um, opportunity or an imperative for other institutions, you know, non-news organizations to sort of take up that slack and also be venues to, to just educate people and also to share information and and provide platforms um, for people to talk about these issues and and share this information. Because if it's not going to happen elsewhere, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, we need to do that. We need to step up. And I'm saying this as somebody who works for an institution, you know? Um, Yeah. So I, I appreciate Peter and Amplify Arts. Shout out to you (laughs) for, you know, hosting, hosting this conversation today. I think we covered a lot of ground. Um, You know, who knows, we might have an, a part three installation in a couple of months. I would love to hear how your work in Minnesota is, is going and that transition is going. Um, I think, you know, we'll continue the conversation then and we'll wrap up. Thank you so much for sharing everything with us. I so greatly appreciate it. And I think the readers and listeners will too. Um, So, Yeah, I guess goodbye now and thank you again. Yes, thank you, Annika and Peter, for both providing this outlet um, to have these discussions. And I appreciate both of you and keep doing good work.